Hey, everybody. Welcome to the newest episode of Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm sitting with Brett Horton, who is the, I'm not quite sure what term do we want to use, historian, bike dork, nerdy collector. But Brett and his wife, Shelly, have created this amazing thing called the Horton Collection, which has more cycling memorabilia than I could ever imagine in one place. And I'm really excited to have Brett here. We met, I think, in 97, 98. Sound about right? Close enough. (laughs) Yes, I remember it well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Brett, thank you for coming on. I'm really excited to, uh, to chat with you. I mean, you've got so much history in your possession of U.S. cycling, European cycling, um, I mean, how did it all start? Well, I, I think if you box it into the uh, corner of a collecting perspective, it makes a little more sense. Because to begin with, I think collectors, regardless of what you collect, you generally have been that way since you were a little kid, whether it's stamps, rocks, coins, whatever. And I happen to be a stamp collector. And you roll it to to adulthood. I have yet to meet someone who was collecting whatever beer cans, Barbie dolls as an adult that weren't collectors as a children. I think the common thread between everyone beyond that is I don't think we were ever hugged as children and we're (laughs) deciding to make up for, for some lost part of our childhood. Um, and, and, and for me, the, the, the road to becoming a cycling collector was actually never intended when I was riding um, you could take take my life out of the movie Breaking Away where Dave Stoller has posters all over his wall in his bedroom as a teenager, and I had the same thing. And when I was getting out of high school in 1981, um, at the end of the season, Freddie Mertens, Belgian, won the world championships, uh, followed by Eno and Cerrone. And there was a poster that Campagnolo made to celebrate that because they were all on campy parts with Freddie winning, of course. And that poster was one that I just really liked. And it, it made the migration to college. And then along the way, you know, ended up in the dumpster. Well, roll it up a few years after that, I wanted that poster. And I found out I couldn't find it anywhere. It had gone because it was a trade show quality poster. And I thought, okay, I'm going to call up these vintage poster dealers. And by then, we're talking it's in the late 80s. And most of the poster dealers, vintage poster dealers, wouldn't even give me the time of day. They just kind of, yeah, whatever, hung up. We don't sell that new stuff. There was one dealer in New York, Jack Rennert. And Jack Rennert, uh, as it turns out, you know, is one of, one of, if not the most preeminent poster dealer in the world. He took the time to explain to me, rather than just giving me this curse, curt blow off, he said, hey, you know, we don't, we don't have that stuff. It's actually going to be hard to find that poster because it's not really expensive. But, you know, there's posters from, that are 100 years old that you can, you can get, and, which I was just fascinated that you could really find posters that old. And he said, if you're ever in New York, come and visit me, and, you know, we'll show you what we've got. And, you know, sure enough, I went out and, and he probably spent, I don't know, two, three hours with me and I bought something that must have been a couple hundred bucks. And that's what kind of set the hook for me. 
but I was always in pursuit of that poster. And it did take me a few years to get that poster. And that poster from 1981 is still what I look as the genesis for the collection. And what's really cool for me is the within that poster, when you look at it, you see the victory. And I knew, and that poster was meaningful to me because when I look at that, and here comes Freddie across the finish line winner, I knew that even though I was a, a track rater that didn't completely suck, I was okay. I was never going to be a pro, especially on the road. But as I looked at the at that poster, there there is this photograph in the in the stands. There is this dude sitting up right at the finish line, and he's clearly a businessman in a suit and, and everything. And I look at, and I realize, well, I can't be Freddie, but that fat bastard at the finish line, yeah, that can be me. <laughs> that can be me someday. You know, physically, I made it there, <laughs> but. Um, over time, as we built our collection and got to meet writers all over the world, I kept going back to that silly poster. And over time, I have the bike that Freddie was riding when he won that race. I have the jersey Eno was wearing when he when he came in second. And I know where Cerrone's jersey is. I just gotta. It's just gonna take me a while to get get it out of him. And it all came full circle in Verona at the World Championships, what are 10, 15 years ago, where we're sitting at uh, in, in the in the Tribune at the at the Worlds, and Shelly smacks me on the leg and announces, "You're that fat bastard." I go, "Yeah," and I said, "Look," and I looked down, and right between my legs was a stripe on the road at the finish line. I had made it. Yeah, it was pretty cool <laughs> to me. I, I got to be the fat bastard at the finish uh, at that race. I mean, you have seen and been so many great events. You've done six days. You've been at the tour. You've, you know, I've seen you in the car at Tour of California go whizzing by as you point at me and laugh as I'm on the side of the road. I politely give you the little person wave. You do give me the little person <laughs> wave. But it's it's really been, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, I remember the first time I came to your office um, and you were showing me all these really, like they were just hanging on the wall. It was not like it was like hidden in a vault. You were like, oh, check this picture out. And I, I'll never forget you had this most amazing window screen that you had. And I was like, how did you do that? And it was a finish. It was a black and white finish turned into that window screen. And it was just, it was the love of the sport and almost being, it's more than a collector. It's like you're a historian for cycling in so many different ways. I mean, you've seen the evolution of all the equipment. You've seen the evolution of the clothing. You've seen the evolution of the riders. You've seen their peaks and their falls. And it's a pretty cool experience. I mean, there's not many people that can say that. They've been a part of it for so long. Well, and I consider that something very fortunate for not only myself, but for Shelly and now our son Trevor as well. That We've got to go on an amazing ride that, again, started out all out because of a dumbass $5 poster from Campagnolo that now has uh, went, went way beyond that in terms of money. But How I, long did it take you to get that poster? Let's go back, because I never heard this oh. story. I want to know how long <laughs> it took you to get the poster from, so the original poster was 5 bucks. How much did it cost you to get the, the final one? 
I, I bet the first, well, I've, I've been able to upgrade several. Now I've got a completely spanky mint version of it. I'm sure. But the tattered one that I first got, it probably didn't cost me even five bucks. And, and, I, and then, and if you find that poster and mint, 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 shake, you're still talking about a $50, $60 poster at best. It's not, it, it's go find it. It's a lot easier to find a $2,000 poster, a $10,000 poster than it is a 50 buck poster. But it took me, my recollection, and I could, I'd have to look to verify on our records, but I'm going to say it was to get a clean copy, a ratty copy was within a couple of years, a good copy. That took me five, six, seven years, I'll bet. But see, I mean, it's the determination to find those pieces and to, you're putting, you're putting together puzzles of time and, and experiences, not only of you that you look to, but also I think people have missed out because this stuff gets flushed, right? You know it. It's like up, tattered, done, sh- throw it away. And they're throwing away a part of history, but you've been able to maintain those pieces. And now people are coming back going, hey, what happened at that year? And do you have that photo? And I heard about this poster and where'd it go? Well, yeah, but I think that that speaks volumes to the difference if you're a collector, a steward, or a dealer, what bucket you ultimately find yourself in. The type of things we collect, it's very different than if I am a baseball card collector because you know that that 1952 series of ABC manufactured baseball cards has a number one and they all have a number on the back of the card and you know you have a complete collection when you have all 327 cards in that series. What The stuff we collect, whether it's race-worn jerseys or the trophies or the photographs or the posters, uh, there's no catalog. And I get asked over and over, well, where do you see your, you know, collection in terms of it being completed? So, well, if, if you're kind of looking at on a scale of one to a hundred and a hundred being we're done, I guess we're probably now all the way up to number four or number five, because I have no idea what else is out there. And it, it's, it's really something that's very subjective. And what Shelly and I collect is maybe very different than Chris, if you were collecting what you would be after or somebody else. And I think to have fun at this, you also have to be pretty secure in what you're wanting to do and what you, how you see the sport. And for me, probably the, the example that most encapsulates this is we, we, we had loaned a bike to a exhibition at the Oakland museum a number of years ago. And it was, made by Ugo de Rosa. It was a steel frame. And it was one, one of, if not the last, steel frame that Ugo made before he just did aluminum. Now I don't believe he's doing any, any holding a torch at all at this point in the game. But anyway, the frame that he made, it, they painted it in a different color than they ever had done. They had decals that were very different. And it was very special because it was truly a, a one-off uh, for me. And had the bike built up and, you know, in the contemporary components at the time. And we had loaned it to an exhibition that was mainly prior Dodge's collection, which he collects late 1800s is my recollection. And then there is a section for more modern stuff. And I really suck at getting to these exhibitions in a timely basis. I'm there on literally the last day of the show and it's local to me. And I'm standing there, and the nice thing about being the doofus collector, nobody knows who you are, nobody cares who you are. So I could just kind of sit and look at this, and they did a really nice job. It was up on it, the bike was up on a pedestal. 
and it's a really encapsulating moment because a man and a woman come around the corner from the other portion of the, of the exhibition and the woman is doing all the talking when it comes in front of the bike and she's just fawning over this bike. What a beautiful bike. Look at this. And she goes with precision on the paint, the decals, everything how it's set up and that this is such a testament piece. And she's walking up and go, wow, you know, really impressed with how cycling literate she was. And, you know, she's very effusive and all that. It wasn't five minutes later, there was another couple that came along and the woman was doing all the talking again. And what I love, the first thing out of her mouth, oh my God, what a piece of shit. And she eviscerated the bike with the same precision as the woman who had just doted over it. And what I loved in that is... It's an inanimate object. The lighting's the same. Everything's the same. It's the eyes that are looking at it. And as a collector, if you're going to be crestfallen because someone doesn't like what you're collecting or how you have, you're, you're, you, you don't do this for uh, trying to seek the uh, happiness and adulation of others. It's a bad thing to do. And I just found it just absolutely fascinating, no matter how much I love the bike, that this other person, these two people, within a matter of minutes could see such two totally different things and it's the same object. That's crazy. Yeah. So you, you, you've been very fortunate enough to, to not only have met folks, but you're now, they're pretty much considered family, some of them. So, you know, Mercs, you guys are kind of like, I don't know, granted, I, I think... Eddie likes Trevor more than he likes you. Oh, uh, let there be no question. <laughs> <laughs> I think Eddie puts up with your crap to hang out with Trevor. But I, I think, you know, that, that really says a lot. I mean, you've, you guys have traveled, met all these wonderful people. And I remember going down to Stanford when you were doing an event. You had Phil Liggett and Eddie there and Eddie Merckx, excuse me. And in, you were doing a signing and a, and a, a conversation with and talking about you know, what it was like for him when he was racing comparative to the current times. And this was back, you know, when I first moved to California, which was in 97, 98. No, I think that was in 96 is when we did the That's, thing. With, okay. So with, 96 with is when I first moved to California and I was working at Rubicon with Larry Stone. So I was there for two years with them. So are you saying that's where we met the first time? Was we, the I remember being introduced to you and getting to meet Phil and meeting Mercs, I was scared shitless huh. to meet Mercs. Um, and, you know, I, you know, as we all know, the voice of Liggett on, you know, watching sure. the tour yeah. and, you know, hearing that and then, you know, being right there was a very eye opening experience. And I'll take your word for it, but I remember our first time meeting is when you and Tatiana were doing a little uh, chef demonstration out in the Presidio, and Shelly and I just thought it was so lovely because, you know, you were, you were doing this demonstration, and you actually were, were making food that was approachable for us. It wasn't some esoteric nonsense. It was something that we could actually walk out of there going, we can do this. That's good to hear <laughs> because I hear a lot of people say the other thing about me. So that's quite nice. Thank you. So what, you know, how did you connect with like, how do you, how is it now that you and Eddie have a great relationship that Trevor can literally be like, Hey dad, can we call Eddie today? I want to ask him a question about this. Like, how did that happen? Cause that's not normal. Let's be honest. 
Well, unless you are neighbors, unless you live down the street from somebody like that, you know. No, well that that goes back to uh oh, that had to be early 90s. It's probably not no, it's 93ish and it's when I decided I really wanted to have a a great cycling collection. And there's a difference between good and great. And to me, you can take it in the context of every little boy who collected coins had that little folder that they'd put their pennies that they were collecting year by year. And they were always missing the two pennies that were actually worth anything. All the other pennies were just a penny. But there were two pennies, I, I think they were in the war and they were made of aluminum or some other metal that everybody, everyone always had those missing. And I took the kind of arrogant dickhead approach that I'm going to start with the two pennies, and if I can't get the two pennies, I'm not going to bother because all the rest of the stuff is is Phil. And to that, to that. So basically, what to translate that into the simplest terms is you wanted to run the marathon first and then do the mile later. Yeah, and we'll get back to the other <laughs> stuff. And, and in cycling terms, you better have Mercs. Yeah, I agree. And then you know, and you can maybe cover it up if you had. Kopi and Ankatil and Eno, maybe, you know, and then bring to the domestic level, you know, having someone like Greg Lamond in there and Andy Hampston. But if you're looking on the international pinnacle, uh, it's Merck's game over. True. And that's when I embarked on the Stocking Eddie program. And <laughs> I went to. Uh, For FBI folks that are listening, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> they have a good friendship now. You don't have to worry about this. So I went to, uh, got, got a pass from uh, a, a bike dealer I knew to go to Interbike. And back then, this predates OLN. And Eddie was at these shows, and Eddie was the guy at the end of the show who was packing up his stuff in his booth. He wasn't cruising in on a, you know, being carried in on a throne. Um, and he was pretty approachable. And we, I had brought a, a roll of posters that I had collected, some of which turns out are pretty, even, even now, 25 years later, were pretty obscure posters. And I, I brought them up to the booth and asked if he would indulge me in, in signing these. And he said, sure. And I don't know what he was expecting when I rolled them out. He clearly, from the reaction, was met with what he said, which is, where on earth did you get these? He says, I haven't even seen a number of these. And then we were talking, and there really, there was no other people around the booth to, to hone in on anything. And when, you know, we chatted for a few minutes, I said, you know, I would really like to get something from your career, something you actually used, you know, a hat, a jersey, a sock. I don't really care. Just something that you actually used. And he gave me, at the time I look at, the most polite Belgian blow-off, which was, well, if you ever find yourself in, you know, in Brussels, give me a call and we can, we can talk about it and have you over. Which obviously was, yeah, go away, little boy. Have a great life. So it's a, you know, a few months later. <clears throat> Shelly and I are in Paris, and I remember it was raining cats and dogs, and I called up Eddie. Eddie. I'm in Paris, planning to come to Brussels tomorrow. Any chance we can get together? And there was this long silence. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> I shouldn't have given him my number. <laughs> <laughs> but got to hand it to the guy. He said, come on over. So we, 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 came, we went over the next day and went to his factory, 
which by the way, in pre-GPS land, that sucked trying to find that place. And we're sitting in you his- mean using a map, yeah, a paper map. A paper map and not know it, having any spatial relationship where any of these things are. I think it took us an hour and a half to get off the ring around Belgium, uh, around Brussels. Uh, and I'm sitting in his office and there is the man at his desk and he's got his super prestige trophies behind him and he's got his hour record bike out in the lobby. And I mean, it's, but he's as lovely as can be. And then he kind of whips out the comment. So what is it that you would like? He asked me, I answered, well, what I'd like, I'd like to get a jersey from every team you rode for, you know, from the start at his first pro team at Solo Superior all the way through, a yellow jersey, a Malia Rosa, you know, world champion jersey. And he listens and I love his comment. I finish and he goes, hmm, I bet you would. And then we, and he knew, and I made it really clear. I wasn't looking for anything free. He says, well, what will you pay for it? And I told him, I'll pay you whatever you want. <laughs> He's kind of looking at me and there's this little sign. I said, look, if you want a million bucks, it's going to take me a while. I'll pay you whatever you ask, you, you want. And then there was the look on his eyes that I think he was doing a mental inventory of, all right, tried to get rid of him in, in Southern California, thought it would work. Then, or Las Vegas, wherever it was at the time, um, shows up in Paris and here he is in front of me. I said, okay. Because I need, I, I'll, I'll go into the house and grab a couple things. So he walks across the courtyard and what felt like five hours, which maybe was 10 or 15 minutes, he comes back in and he starts dropping on the desk. And I remember it. He had a stack in there and it's in date order Solo Superior, Peugeot, Fema, Femino. <laughs> and of course, I'm looking at it going, oh, crap <laughs> it's for real i'm gonna be in debt to this guy till the time i'm dead because i was okay. raised if raised if you make a deal you gotta see it through mm -hmm. and he said so is this what you're looking for and uh yeah <laughs> and he then put out a price which was fortunately for me nothing in that million dollar a jersey realm it was quite manageable and he said can you do that and the best i could stummer is yeah I need to go to American Express to get the, the Belgian francs to do it, and I can be back here tomorrow, but yes, I'll do it. And it was in that moment, you know, I, I'm going to get this stuff. I show up back the next day, and, but what was eating me the whole day at the Amex shop and then ultimately coming back in the driver was, why on earth is he letting this little dopey dude from California have the jersey he was wearing when he won Liège in 75. Why was he letting a, his yellow jersey from the last year he won the tour? And every one of these jerseys, they weren't just team jerseys. They were special jerseys. And we get back, we, we have the deal done. So it's not like there's any turning back. And I just ask him, Eddie, why on earth are you letting me get these jerseys? You get people asking you all the time. You've got it. Says, I get letters every single week. You are the first person that's ever offered to pay for them. And it was in that moment I realized. That's, that's really insulting and almost shocking that people would just stick their hand out and ask without offering to pay. Them I, I kind of get why they do. Their, their perception is these jerseys were free and you know, you should help my, my fill in the blank, my charity, my, my collection, whatever. 
and I, I guess I take this militant capitalist American approach that says, no, he bled out of his eyeballs to get every one of those. And this had nothing to do with the quantum of money. What it has to do is with the respect that I, that, that's, I don't have a jersey to give him what he wants my California district champion jersey. <laughs> but mean, that's amazing to think that no one had the wherewithal or the respect to offer him money other than you. And it, it's, yeah, it's sad. But it's I, pathetic. I find that that's a broken record in the sport. You hear that from a lot of the athletes oh, you deal yeah, with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I'm not, and I don't approach it as ugly American throw money at it. I, I try to make sure that, it's, that I have a level of respect. And I have had plenty of riders that will say, that's awesome. What I want you to do is when, we, when you leave here, see that mechanic out there cleaning my bike, just walk up, give him that 500, that 1,000 euros, just put it in his hand and just keep walking. I've had, hey, give the money to my charity that I support. Because in the end, is the money going to make that, is 500, 1,000, 2,000 euros going to make a life-changing difference to, to a guy who's already making a few million dollars a year? No. But again, I think it's it's a level of deference and respect, which is about the only thing I can do unless the guy is a collector himself. Then we can trade stuff. You know, there's a couple writers that I do that with that, we, we can trade stuff all day because I've got stuff he can never have access that that other writer can never have access to. It's amazing. I mean, you think about that from the bigger perspective. And I mean, there's so many writers out there doing such amazing things. But what you just said, they are putting themselves. They're basically sitting on a brass tack nonstop, right? They're going, 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 going. Absolutely. And they're, that's their time. That is the, what they're doing. It's their job. But then some of the guys, I think it's natural. It's not just cycling sportsmen in general. There's a lot of them that in the moment they don't realize, one, it re the intellectually you know it's not going to last forever. But they really haven't wrapped their head around that these careers ne aren't necessarily going to last. You're not always going to be the fast years. guy. Yeah. And, and you'll have an arc, a decline, and then you're just gone. And once you're out of the magazine, it is astonishing how quickly you fade away i can look at giuseppe Cerrone and say you know he was the the dude in you know if you look back into the 80s he was a big writer and yet you see him managing uh and i'm drawing a blank on which team it's an italian pro team and i would watch fans just crawling over his back to get to a 21 year old domestique to get their autograph and completely walking past him and it's it's just wow you know how quickly you fade from that visible glory the limelight, and yeah. then and where i'm going with that is i you know there was peter van pettigam i got his uh, jersey from in 2003 when he won perry roubaix and we had made the deal well before the race it was a couple days prior and he was perplexed one why i wanted his jersey and i said well you know you're you know, you, you have a chance to, you know, win both races. And he was very well aware. Devlamic was the only other guy prior to that that had ever won it twice. And, you know, I had pointed out to him, yeah, but I've, I've got the last four winners spot on at, at Roubaix. 
and then it looked he looked like I had just cursed the black cat in front of him and I said no I don't care if you win lose or draw because you're wearing the world cup leader jersey I want the jersey and we made the deal and sure enough you know he ends up winning the race which is you know arguably that or Flanders or, or his two biggest races he, he had won during his career and I got I was standing in the infield right at the finish line because the photographers like to be about 50 meters behind. He comes off the podium, and here's a guy. He's just won his big race of his career. He's coming down all sweaty, holding the rock. He sees me. Oh, come on over. And, and I, 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 there's a point in me that I'm almost dying of embarrassment because he wanted to make sure I got his jersey and it didn't get lost in the fray he didn't even get to his shower back in there before he he made sure i had that jersey in my hands and and that too to me speaks volumes of the riders when they make a deal it's done and they, it's a code of honor yeah and they they always come through but i don't i i will see peter every few years i'll run into him at the Gent six day and and I always, you know, ask him because some of the writers, they don't have anything left at the end of their career. They've given it all away. And I do look like, okay, yes, I may paid money for this jersey, that jersey. But if the writer wants that jersey back in a heartbeat, they get it back. Because to me, man, I, I, I'm the steward of it. But it's really if they've got, a, you know, their family wants out or something, it, it should be at their home. And, and I always... Just have a quick little check-in with Peter. And he is always, well, really happy where it's at. And I've got the stone. <laughs> He's got the stone. And the stone is more cool. The jersey's cool, but the stone is the way stone more is cool. Way cool. <laughs> you know, I, I got to say that that's a really special place, you know, being in the velodrome for the finish of Paris-Roubaix. Let's be honest. It is beyond cool. It's beyond cool. <laughs> and, you know, um, for my 45th birthday, I was fortunate enough to go. I rode the day before, and I rode the, the, the Sportive, which was a crazy, complete shit show, because um, you see everything. You see it all. And yes, then, you do. And then we got on a bus tour, and we were in Nuremberg Forest, and we raced back down into town on this bus tour, and um, through Bob Roll connecting me with Paul Sherwin, rest his soul, um, Paul gave... Tatiana Easton and I VIP passes to stand in the box, which like you said, where you, you know, we were talking about earlier where you stood at the finish, being able to see that finish line. It was, it, it's literally 50 people, 60 max. And I'm standing next to Stuart O'Grady and you've got Jonathan Botters in the back, pulling his hair out that year. Cause his guy was in the final three coming in. It's a really amazing experience to be able to have that opportunity to stand next to the finish line to see that come in to hear the sound of them whipping around that velodrome the noise the ground shaking from everybody just stomping like it's powerful oh you better believe it and that race just has a magic that not all races have i love that race like beyond i mean it falls on my birthday every few years like i've followed that one forever i have after having ridden it and seeing the speed difference between those guys and what I was able to accomplish, like you don't yell at the TV anymore, go, 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 because they can't go anymore. Like, I mean, they're moving. Oh, absolutely flat out. In that particular year, what what's always going to resonate with me 
I'd say on equal footing with actually a picking the winner and getting his jersey was the box you were you're referring to. I kind of got to get out of the box without any problem, and I, I made sure everybody was cool with it. I you know know how to I like to think I know how to behave properly, <laughs> but I was standing on the apron about two feet from the bell, and there wasn't anybody within thirty feet of me, and I was literally dead on and I just made sure I was off so I wasn't going to muck up anybody's camera shot and I love it I'm not in a single camera shot of that finish because I just stood at the edge of the apron but there was nobody standing around me it was just me seeing Van Pettigam hauling ass hands up at the finish line and I don't think people realize how close you really are to the athletes when you're in that VIP or and you're on that on the velodrome and the apron I mean if someone had stuck their arm out like to like take a picture, you know, now now's the big problem of people taking selfies, sticking their head out into the course and whether it be during the tour or other events, like you would break your arm and change the course of the event. Yeah, and you're also not going to get the special uh, pass to go. You'll back. never get the special pass go because it's literally you are in arm's reach distance from the athletes and they go blowing by you at speeds that I I can't even imagine trying to pull on my own. I I never want to be that guy. No, but it just, ever. It just yeah. but no, what I'm saying is, is people don't realize how close the sport allows you to really get. To oh, if you athlete. compare it to say soccer, baseball, football, you, you were there, you're 20 yards, 30 yards away from the, you're the an real action. Swing. Yeah. You can reach out and touch the person. You can pat them on the back and say, good job. Yep. I mean, it's unlike any other sport, I think is what makes it so incredible. And with the exception of perhaps the tour and a few of the big one days you have access and even if you say Roubaix prior to the race their trucks are out there they may have a little fence so you can't walk on into the trailer but you you still have access you you have a a, an ability to see these guys better than than almost any other sport it's unreal so Shelly how has she been such an integral part your wife is like I mean, come on, you know, you know, my wife, Tatiana, she's, I don't know why she's still around. I say that on a regular basis, but. Oh yeah, I married up. There, uh, <laughs> I, I'm the first one to admit that. There's no question. And, and I, I've been asked, well, would you ever get married? You know, would you still marry Shell if you had to do it all over? Oh, heavens, yes, I would. Problem is, I'm not sure what her answer is necessarily going to be. But I got married to a, to a woman who, um, you know, she had no connection to cycling, and but she didn't want to turn into call it that the golf widow, you know, whose husband is gone doing the golfing thing. She bolted on in and kind of realized that I I I was and remain a dork to this sport, and I wasn't racing anymore when I met her. Um, but she, you know, she she wanted to be kind of. Part of it, and what I've noticed with Shelly, and and it now brings in Trevor into the ultimate of the picture is, she she, I think on the front end of this was probably more just being a nice supportive wife, and you know, and she got some cool trips to Europe, but that quickly changed, and you roll it up to today. I'll put her against pretty much any journalist. You want to chat about the history of the oh, sport, yeah. the nuances. I know that. She can bury you. 
on, I, on the, on the, she's caught, she's, I'll ask her if I want to know what's current up to date or history. And there's been conversations that we've had at the farmer's market where she's like, have you heard about the trades going on and who's going to what team and this? I mean, she's like, boom, 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 boom. Perfect. And I think she has a huge advantage being a woman who likes the sport, who's also, she's not threatening to me. She's not looking for anything. And, and there's plenty of these writers that I am thoroughly convinced just like Trevor, they like her better than me. And I, I'm okay for it with, with that arrangement, but she, she has embraced the sport whole hog. And then when the, when Trevor was born in 2005, he made his first trip to the uh, European race when he was 12 weeks old to the Ghent six. And that the Ghent six day is where Trevor went Eddie for the first time. We have, a, we, we, we got, we uh, had given the, the velodrome that year a, a starting bell. They didn't have a lap bell. And so we had one made for the Ghent velodrome that they still to this day have there um, as a gift to Patrick Sircou. And we were there. We got to ring the bell to start the race, which, uh, as far as I know, we're the first Americans to ever ring the bell to start a European six day ever. That's amazing. On day one. And then I look and go, the Ghent Velodrome, that's where Trevor took his first steps, was at the at the Velodrome. And Trevor loves to go to Ghent. And we have just some adorable pictures of him interacting with different riders. Like Bruno Risi was a multiple world champion. He has a son very near Trevor's age. And they... Bruno always had a soft spot for Trevor and there were always these lovely photographs, you know, that Tim DeWall and the other ph photographers would shoot of Trevor just, and they're very candid. They're not really so much posed. And there was one that Trevor, and, and I don't recall if it was Tim or who shot the photograph of Trevor with Bruno. And I didn't think anything of it till I was in London with Eddie and Eddie was signing some stuff for us when we did one of our lithos a few years back. And Trevor asked Eddie if he could get a photograph and Eddie pops off the chair like he's coming out of a damn jack in the box. And Eddie, if you look at most photos with fans, Eddie's kind of got a nonplussed look on his face. He's smiling and I'm going, what the hell? And I took the picture and then we sat down and Eddie's kind of smiling and and I said, okay, what, what's up? He goes, well, I got a picture with Trevor. Because you haven't had a fan in the last 20 minutes get a photo with you? <laughs> and he goes, ah, no, you remember Ghent? No. And then I said, what are you talking about? He says, yes. When, when, when Trevor got his photo with Bruno, I, I vaguely remember it. And he goes, yeah, I was standing there. And s someone had asked Trevor why he wanted a photo with, with, uh, with Bruno. And Trevor said, I only want photos with my friends. And I go, yeah. He goes, well, that means Trevor's thinks, you know, says we're friends. <laughs> That's really cute. What I thought was just awesome. And, you know, and, and it, 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 it shows the humble, honest care for people. Yeah, really does. And it, I just, it was a lovely thing that I would have never thought. It was me more just focused on, all right, let's get this, this stuff done. Because when we do these signings, we don't have 50 people in the room. It's Shelly and I and Trevor. And everybody's kind of working. And in that particular instance, since Trevor's moving along in school, he was just sitting there doing homework all day long. And he never bugs anybody for anything. And he, 
you know, for him to go up and ask for the photo was a big ask for him, but that the reaction was just lovely. So you've, you've, you know, you, you're, there's Mercs and then, then now there's Hino. You have a, you know, how is it that you have been able to connect with all these guys? Well, some of it, if I look at it in the, in the big picture, working with Eddie and working and then ultimately then Eddie's the one who introduced me to Patrick Sercou, uh, who's greatest six day writer of all time. Um, that's the equivalent of a phone call from God. If I couldn't get to somebody, if it was a track rider, if it was a road rider, it was Eddie with someone who is a track rider. You, you use this very sparingly, but I, I knew that if I contacted Patrick and Patrick contacted ABC writer who lives in Austria and says the American would like to get the time of day from you. My phone phone is ringing within five minutes. So you have a you have a, a, a bat phone. The bat phone, yes, yeah. and, and that helped. And then it's working through like with Bernard. I had only ever had social interactions with him at ASO events, the tour and the and the stuff when he was working for ASO, where he recognized me and it would always shake the hand, but it was very perfunctory. It wasn't anything of any depth. So uh, to get to Bernard, it was through Tony Strike and the he's really phenomenal uh, photographer that lives in the, in the Netherlands. And then his son who knew the one of Bernard's teammates. So it was a click, click, click to get to Bernard. And my interaction with Bernard, you know, again, was very superficial. So the first time I'm going to have any kind of depth with him, uh, it's a week almost in time. That's not an easy, you know, you know, we all know that, Eno is known as the Badger. Absolutely, and I was very aware of that. How did uh, how did like what did you expect walking in? Since you didn't really, if you hadn't met him, like did you know what you were going to get, or was it a guess? Oh, I had no clue how this was going to go down, and and it would have been awesome if I would have kind of thought this through two months prior to when I did start thinking this through, which is when I was driving with all of the lithographs in the back of a, of a Mercedes station wagon in the middle of the night driving from Belgium down to Brittany. And it suddenly finally dawns on me, uh, this has a potential of going very wrong if he's grouchy. <laughs> and I've just shelled out <clears throat> a lot of money. Ba basically, we're, we're talking a, a, a ton of money by anybody's stretch of the imagination to have this stuff to, to do this. And am I going to be greeted with a curmudgeon? I, I, it was just the unknown. And then the next morning, at, you know, my, myself and the uh, my translator, we come to Bernard's farmhouse out in the middle of BFE Brittany to his farm knock on the door and I'm still going to, uh, how's this going to go down? And the guy that opened the door, this badger, no way. The guy who opened the door was a farmer from Brittany, a grandpa, a husband. He was just lovely. M moment one just couldn't have been more welcoming. Bernard, after about 30 minutes of chit chatting, 
we oh well let's get down to business and get this get working on this stuff and we knew it was going to take a few days to kind of go through it because it wasn't let's do this for 10 hours people can't their hands they can't sit there and sign for that long and it was one where Bernard didn't just sit on the throne waiting to have the 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 serfs come and bring the stuff to him he's out there with me and, and the translator hauling the crap out of the out of the back of the out of the back of the Mercedes and bringing it in the house and stacking it up. Every time we finished a box, Bernard's putting the stuff back in the box, taping the boxes, and the whole time we're there, it's just, it's just this lovely random discussions that I don't. I, I find I don't really bring up cycling so much in the discussions unless it's led by the other person, because among other things, what am I going to do? Bernard, what was your favorite victory? I mean, come on. If you can't <laughs> see that in 8,000 or you are lazy. You know, so it's it's stuff that kind of you don't, you, you let it organically form. At least I find that works much better for me. And then, you know, when we're going to go to lunch, we're going to, we're, we're getting his car and we drive down to one of his favorite little lunch spots. And it's a very, you know, it's just a normal little, nice little fun little restaurant for lunch. And then his grandkids coming out after school's over. And when we're taking a little break, uh, comfort break, then, you know, the kids and I are out on the front kicking the soccer ball around for 20, 30 minutes. I'm getting to play with his dog. You know, it's a, it's a very human element, even down to walking in, and seeing the ultimate testament of mere mortal bicycle rider, right next to the laundry room is that same rack that everybody has around the world, and there are his socks, his shorts, his jerseys, hanging out to dry. Out in his garage, you'll walk and see, there's the bikes, there's the cluttered repair stand that everybody has, and everybody tells you they have a clean organized tool nobody has a clean workbench nope no way no way and and just seeing and his wife is lovely i mean that whole experience i can say without any hesitation the absolute nicest sweetest person i could ever imagine meeting and by far the easiest person there wasn't one whining complaint anything the whole time every day it was everything i want to sign all the stupid inscriptions <laughs> but and then you compare this to the visual that most people have is him tearing people's legs off or the infamous photo of him slugging the union uh the union workers that are blocking the tour yeah you have that and there's another one where he got in a full throttle fist fight with another rider and those two evidently are best buddies. But it's, it's it, it just goes to show you, like, you know, the racing was his job. It was his life. Yes, and I think that... Yeah, but he separates the two. It's a perfect example now of someone who is able to balance their life. Yes, and it's it's really clear that he doesn't get his identity as a person from being a bike rider anymore. That, that ship has sailed. He's he's very happy with what he was able to accomplish on a bike. But in the course of the discussions, it's abundantly clear what really moves the needle for him is the success of his children, the love of his grandkids, that he's married to the same woman and they clearly still love each other. That it you, you don't have to be around a person very long to see where what really makes them tick. And clearly it's that human element that you know, I, I don't, it, it, it's just, I didn't know what I was going into and what 
what came out the back end was just awesome. So do you see that in a lot of the other riders? I mean, you know, let's be honest. There's so many talents out there. There's so many historical talents out there. Um, who else do you, do you, do you feel as somebody that's really kind of moved the needle for you personally? I, I, I really find if I'm looking back and, and this would be people that I've known for 20 plus years at this game. So you don't just see them in a snapshot and you're not really sure you see them over time. You're going to be able to see a consistency and one that instantly jumps to mind is Eric Zobel and Eric and his wife Cordula. She, they're, they're, They've been together. It's first wife, first marriage, and they clearly still are happily in love with each other. And here's a guy who is a tenacious sprinter, had every, every monster. Yeah, every trait that could go with that. And I just love it on a personal level. And now Eric's much more visible in the U.S. with his uh, connection to the Belgian waffle ride. And oh, yeah, he's, he'll be and, at BWR and yeah, he's with Canyon. I mean, we see him a lot now. He was at uh, Sea Otter this past, yes. this past year. And, and, Eric is a complete pussycat. He always has wasn't time. Wasn't on the bike. No, 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 he wasn't. And and I love it. If you look at him, you look at Merckx, you look at Eno. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty much a lot of the teammates didn't particularly care for them. The competitors really didn't care for these people. I mean, Eddie Merckx is put up on this huge pedestal, but I've talked to enough journalists that covered him during the day that just would say, I love it. They would always preface, Eddie's such a wonderful person now. But let me tell you when Eddie was writing. And then it just gets dark. <laughs> and man, it's, oh, wow, okay. And, and pretty much the common thread is most of these top guys were varying levels of menacing whack jobs across the board. There's very few that were seemed to be able to be human. And they get focused. And I see that on some of the modern writers that I know that I love to meet them when we're having dinner the day before, the day after the race. Most of these guys, I don't really even want to talk to them on the day they're racing because there's... They're in the zone. Yeah, they're in the zone. They're just going to piss me off. And and, and and it's better. I just I just have a very perfunctory, hey, have fun, you know, have fun. Go See fast. Go fast. <laughs> and I go on my down. merry way. Don't fall down. <laughs> it's, it's, you look at them all and you think like, I, I mean, I have so many vivid memories of watching, you know, tours and events and cycling events from past you have massive historical pieces from all these people big their monuments in life people call some of these races monuments um like who who do you think is the one that kind of shocked everybody of stuff that you have personally i mean you've got some stuff that i mean i think would shock folks like you've told me of shorts that were that were offered to you that had stain like blood stained chamois i mean you've told me stories where i've been like dude why would you want that but they're like powerful pieces of history that people do want but that requires them to be put in context like if you look at the bloody shorts those were jock on shorts yes and um when, when those came to, to for one i don't really collect shorts for a multitude of reasons <laughs> let's just be honest i think I, i've got a bad enough time when my wife lovingly tells people that when it comes to jerseys that what i really do is i collect the used clothing of other adult males <laughs> which is true and i mean if you look at what we're collecting they're actually um i would always like to say cycling apparel is a glorified underwear 
yeah. or superhero costumes. Absolutely. But those shorts, um, I kind of shrug. Well, I don't, I don't really collect shorts, even if they're Oncotil. I have several. I'm super lucky that Shelly and I have several, a lot of, well, not a lot, but several of Oncotil's jerseys. But then it was, well, you know that Jacques always suffered very severely from saddle sores. Yeah, yeah that would have sucked. Yeah, turns us out. It looks like a rabbit died in there. It is just, it is That's wrong. In wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we're talking old chamois. We're talking. Oh, like- yeah, that sheet of leather sewn onto some fabric. And you look at that and you go to get that chamois that way, the amount of suffering that he went through. And, and, you know, to me, that's what makes it astonishing. I still have never really figured out how to tastefully display that. But it, it's I don't just, think you really can. But this story on it. But w- what I have done is there's a number of crash jerseys that we, we have that, like, I have a great set from Tom Bonin when he, I had made a deal at Tour of California for uh, Tom Hincappy. There was three or four riders. At, it was a stage one into Sacramento. And... There is a big old crash that involved Hen Cappy and Bone, and, and it just it ripped and it blew out the bulk of uh, Tom's season. And these guys, what they would do is, I, I never want a jersey autograph. They'd autograph the, the the number, and then they'd write the date and the stage, and then some would write write uh, little comments. And I, I'm pretty sure it was George's jersey that it says um, a bad day at the office, and then uh, Tom says greetings from the tarmac. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> That's so funny. So, yeah, you have the original first timepiece. Yeah, fr- from the first tour. Yeah, a uh, gentleman named George Abrams, who was a jeweler in Paris. Um, as you might imagine, when the tour started, there was not a lot of money to go around. It was a shoestring budget. Uh, certainly by today's standards. And so Henri de Grange, one of the two founders, surrounded himself with people that had some bucks to make it work. So George Abrahams, you know, a good jeweler in Paris, he became the timekeeper. Well, he had his pocket watch, a little fancy chronograph at the time, one a very early co- chronograph. Um, and turned out, you know, Mr. Abrams just kept doing it year after year up through the First World War. And that watch had been passed down through the family. And I was extremely fortunate that it was through the good graces of Jean-Marie LeBlanc, who kind of worked it out to link me, put me in touch with the family member who had that watch. And I was able to acquire that from the grandson, great-grandson, and in addition to just the watch, I have a f- folio that has Abraham's birth certificate, his wedding certificate, photos of him at the early tours, and all this stuff that really makes that watch more than just a a watch. It brings brings that little bit of history. You go, this is from the very start uh, of the race, and that he was there timing it for the the massive amount of cheating that happened in the 04 tour. He was the guy and he, you, you went through all those early, those first years in the development of the race. And to have that is, is awesome. And we ha- also a few years ago, we're fortunate to be able to get 
there wasn't any medals that I've ever heard of seen photos from the 03 tour and, and including the finishing there, there was, uh, Maurice Garand, there's a photo of him that we have that to my understanding is the only original photo of the finish with him next to the trophy. And it wasn't a trophy. It was just a piece that came out of somebody's house for a photo op, but there was, it wasn't really a trophy, but we ended up getting the following year. Um, they did have some medals and we have what I, I believe is the earliest Tour de France award, which we have stage one of the 04 tour that Maurice Garan his name's engraved on it, the medal he won for winning the stage one of that tour. And we were also thrilled. We were able to get the first perpetual trophy the ever, the tour ever issued, which is really cool bronze and marble art deco, uh, trophy for the team competition. And, all these things separately, they're cool and everything, but and we have a banner that you'd hang across the street for the finishing line banner that's all hand painted from the twenties that, you know, was 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 the finish line banner for the tour that they would move it day to day. And they become much more interesting when they're put together. It's not just a standalone, you can say, Yes, this is a cool piece, but it it, it really comes to life when you have photos of the person who owned that watch when you see the start flag from the tour and you actually have photos of the person holding that flag and you can weave the story that gives continuity it gives a lot to it it makes you connect with what you're looking at absolutely and i think that that if you just have one piece in a static environment it, it just it doesn't have any life and i look at it that it's not my job, it's something I love doing, of really digging and figuring out, well, one, is this thing actually real, among other things, but then continuing and flushing it out. What did that, what role did that play? Even, even if you're looking at a, the flags that used to be on the side of the cars, and then realizing, wait, these are all numbered, what, did the, what does the numbering mean? And realizing, ah, looking at the old photos, if the flag has number one, that was the race director's car. So I, I, I searched for 15 years to finally get a number one car <laughs> flag. See, what, you're, you're more than just a collector. You've become a storyteller. That's absolutely what it is. And to me, and that's, I think that's amazing. But that, I, I think, is somewhat of an advantage of being an American because I don't, I'm not surrounded day-to-day in Europe with folks that are active collectors. So I... You know, it's Shelley and I creating our own narrative for this stuff and what we want to do. And as the years tick by, I absolutely am less interested in the acquisition of objects. And it shifted to, let's say, the acquisition of stories and experiences. It's so much more cool to me. Take Bernard. I already have several of Bernard's jerseys. Never once came up that Bernard, can I buy one of your jerseys or all these medals that you have in your house? Can I can I buy one? It never even came up. And I think it's more that as time has gone on, it goes back to those stories. I I don't want a commercial transaction to get something. What I'm much more interested in now is tell me about that disagreement you had with ABC Rider at XYZ Race and what went on. And, and, and what makes those type of things even more fun for me is you find out about this disagreement between two people and you ask them their stories and then you ask the other riders that would have been in that race 
everybody has a story. And so you've collected six, seven stories and you go, y'all were at seven different races, evidently. <laughs> exactly. You know, what is that old saying? It's like, let's get down to the bottom of this. There's of the argument. There's his, his uh, this one, that one, and then the truth. Yeah. And then some of this, you just kind of have to step back and go, well, I'm not sure if there's fact, you know, which one is fact, which one is real. Cause there was so much angst going on at the moment. I'm sure. Absolutely. And it, it, the, the, just the, the duels that have gone on going back to the early days. I mean, you're talking in the 1890s, you had cheating, you had doping, you had strategy. It was, while it was more of an individual sport than a team sport over time, the concept of team really became a driver to the point that then the Tour de France said we're not having trade teams, it's really just national teams to try to break up the dominance of trade teams. And that ultimately is gone and it's never coming back. I mean, they used to even smoke before they climbed the mountains. Well, yeah, because that was going to open your lungs Open up. your lungs a lot, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the water station was usually uh, ravaging your local bar or wine shop, whatever yeah. you could get your hands on. And then then... From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, which I could be, riders would come through, they'd ravage the town, the stop, and then the tour organization would come through and pay for what they had ravaged. Yeah, in theory, that's how it was supposed to go down. Um, <laughs> and, and then there were also ones that, I, I, in my mind, I'm convinced were setups as well, like the Coke and the Pepsi trucks that would just magically appear, appear just outside of town. And you have, we have a number of photos with riders climbing all over the Coke or Pepsi trucks to get the beverage and you know take on their way and going that's a great photo op for them but the stuff in the in the stores there was a multitude of reactions that you see in these photos from shopkeepers that really have the oh my look in their what eyes what the hell's going on right now versus the ones that think it's awesome <laughs> that the writers picked their tavern to so just empty tell me if this is if this is uh hearsay or not i heard a story of a writer whose fork broke who then proceeded to go to a local farm dude and literally weld his own fork back. Absolutely. Totally accurate. And because back back in the time period of that, you had to you had to take care of your own bike. There was a period where you were issued a bike. It was this yellow bike that said La Auto, and the riders all rode the same bike because the idea was you're not going to get a technology advantage over the other rider. I mean, it's a different time and space. Totally. So there's so much, you know, now there's collectors, right? There's historians. I like to call you a storyteller and a collaborator. Uh, that's a all. nice way of saying bullshitter, isn't it? No, no. But I mean, you're <laughs> connecting the pieces. And I think you're dealing with, when you're doing things, like you're dealing with other collectors. You said, you know, we talked about it the other day. You're doing trades with, you had just mentioned a moment ago, you do trades with riders, right? Yeah. Are there people that you enjoy doing trades with that you consistently see people reach out to you on a regular basis? I mean, I know because I follow certain riders on Instagram and social media. I know Wiggins is a big one. Um, and I follow a couple other different riders that I see post stuff that they are proud of. Whether And majority of them aren't ever posting stuff about themselves. No, and I think most writers, even if they have phenomenal collections of their own stuff, like Merckx. Eddie still has the greatest Merckx collection you'll ever imagine. Well, you would. Same thing like Sean Kelly. 
phenomenal Sean Kelly collection. Zobel has it. You, there, there's a number of writers who's either parents or someone kept co- all their stuff. Yeah, because they would have blown it if they were on their own. And I, I haven't met. I'm not a well. Danny Clark, who's a really great six. He's number two and best six day writer of all time. He's maybe the only one that, I, that comes instantly to mind who actually collected all of his stuff. But a lot of these guys, no, it was someone else that's collecting. But then you have... Have you ever hit a Bob Roll? I know he's got a secret collection. You know, when we get done here, don't 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 tell him. But I, when I drove past his house, I noticed the garage is unlocked. Okay. I'm going in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I find with the writers what we... what. What ha- has happened with a few of them, where they they're really interested in the history, they kind of discount themselves out of the equation, and they're much more interested in pursuing other ones. But I I almost look at the the former writers in the same way that I would look at a another a fellow collector. Something like a poster is very easy on provenance to know that it's a real deal. You can look at that in a heartbeat. Trophies almost as easy to do that as well. When you get into a jersey, that's where you get in, can get into some squirrely areas. And I want an f- exact photo match. That's why we have over half a million f- original photographs. It wasn't because we set out to be photo collectors. It's because we're trying to document that the jerseys we're acquiring are real. Because these aren't 50 bucks. I mean, these, these can roll well into upper five figures. Yeah, it is not... It's enough that I need to be knowing that if I'm going to be paying someone a lot of money, that it's legit, that it's real, and so I I would I would look and say, okay, we, we're getting this jersey, is it real? And then it's finding other collectors because I I can't tell you how many times I've been offered Fausto Copi's bike and Fausto Copi's jersey, and the jerseys or the bikes were made 20 years after Copi was dead, but it's because. <laughs> Guido in Italy, his uncle said this was at it was uh, was Fausto's, and I'm you know I'm the Satan because I'm the one telling him, well, dude, you know your your grandpa's trying to make you feel good, or your uncle was making you feel good. It's not real. Sorry. Um, How many is that? That's pretty common take. It's astonishing, especially out of Italy. Sad. How how much that? And I don't know that it's not, it's so much a, an intent to deceive. It's. Someone was told, you know, when they were a little boy, that this was the champion, you know, the champion's jersey. So that individual is now an adult and he's held on to it his entire life. Yeah, and now I get to be the buzzkill. But then you have guys like Brad Wiggins. And what I love about Brad is he is absolutely positively as anal retentive as I am. He's matching up the photos exactly. And when when he was out here after tour of California, he stayed an extra couple days and you know, I was showing him how this is how you take a photo and you do a photo match and how you can measure. You only need to know one of the two of the angles and then you can triangulate the entire jersey and then you know if it's real. On the bike, similar th- things that you can do to really delve in and just don't take it as a quick, easy match. But the, it's things like that. And so there are riders that are very fastidious as they are. They're, they're as anal about collecting as they were when they were riders. That's awesome. That's really interesting to hear. So I, I, I can't even imagine how many. I mean, you said you have how many photos? Ballpark of about 600,000. And you're comparing by triangu- triangulating the photo to make sure that the jersey is really what was worn. Yeah, it's the length of the zipper. So you don't do the sniff test. 
only on the modern stuff and only late at night. <laughs> uh, but no, you look you you look at where how long that zipper was, and you look where the yeah. logos are, or and, the or like where the buttons were on the front pockets, and making sure that makes total. And sense. it is tougher now with modern jerseys because they're all coming off of transfers the the that get dropped onto it. So now it's understanding like we'll take Paolo Bettini. I can spot a real Bettini versus a replica now from probably ten feet because I know the precise measurements. He always wanted custom clothing. So all of his team clothing, there's a difference in length. Italian tailored. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> But these guys want shorter, you know, longer, short, shorter shorts, sleeves, sleeves, whip. tight, a little bit loose, banded, unbanded. But yeah. I can easily tell one that was actually his versus something somebody bought in a shop. Whereas Bonin, I am convinced Tom's, you know, going in for a fitting at Vermark when he was racing for Quick Stop was, you know, I'm size four. Yes, we're done. And walking out. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Because of Vermac and well, you know, and the the crazy part about that is you, there's always somebody you know at Vermac who can always make sure if it's legit or not. Well, yeah, and that's fun for me. I was a you know when I when when I've got to show some of these jerseys that I wasn't really sure that came from s- certain riders, special races where they would have had reason to have a very custom something made. I can take it to the person who would have sewn it. And they can look for their own markings in it. Even like Merckx's jerseys, the jerseys I've taken, and it's not Eddie that I asked to, to look at, it's his wife, because Claudine has a way of sewing when she would sew the holes up, because you can get new jerseys every day. And I've got to the point, I can recognize now. Her so stitch. I know how she does a back stitch. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, you've introduced me to so many folks over the years. Um, you know, and now it's been super fun. I mean... Our Vermac connection, of course, he's notorious. Everybody sees him showing up at all the events and his crazy hair. Uh, I, I'm drawing a blank at his name. Uh, <laughs> yes, the great and wonderful Brian Worthy. <laughs> we call those Worthy sightings at events. And he appears everywhere. And I get those uh, uh, crazy texts out of nowhere. Where are you today? What are you doing? I'm like, are you watching me? Uh, he's Brian Worthy's amazing. Yeah, awesome person. Love and him. he's he's been nothing but a heaven sent, I think, to the sport in the U.S. Absolutely, and that's a guy who, even you know, he 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 works with for Mark as their U.S. importer, but he absolutely there's that love for the sport, and he really is proud of the brand that he represents. Oh yeah, and it's not just okay. I need to make a nickel this month. He really believes in what he's support and he, he he goes out of his way to open the doors for so many people and you gotta love you know and and every industry has got the people that you'd rather just kind of have never met and then you've got people like brian who are just you know i he's salt of the earth yeah and i love that i look at him and consider him a friend I, he's so funny i love i love the worthy settings if you if anybody out there ever follows Anybody in cycling, there's definitely a worthy sighting. I think that's even gotten to a hashtag now on social media, worthy sightings. How sad and pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's 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 one of the ones that has just like 
been so embracing for me into the world and introduced me to so many other folks at different events, whether it be at Sea Otter and making sure that I get to meet all these pros as a young man I looked up to. And he was instrumental in helping us when we went out to, you know, Perry Roubaix. So, yep. Good guy. Good guy. All, all across the board. So what is next for you guys? as the Horton collection. I mean, I know people can go online and look at what's on the site. You guys are constantly educating people, but you have a whole slew of things that are available for purchase. There's signatures that are being, you know, by particular riders in your lithos. I mean, what's coming next? Well, uh, <laughs> I guess on one land, I, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm the woman who just gave birth and you're saying, when are we going to have our next kid? Because I just got through the brain brain trauma of going through the Eno and Roger Devlamic experience, which is lovely as but it was. But that's available for folks right now. You yeah, have- yeah. There, there's there's that stuff. I, I would say um, there there is nothing that's on the agenda that I'm saying, oh, I am pursuing A, B, and C right now. It, it For me, it, it no longer really works that way. Stuff just kind of appears or I happen to be told of something and it's much more organic than strategic at this point in the game and it may be this afternoon I find out that there's something fabulous and wonderful that I have to I I I have I'm hearing a rumor that there's some crazy whack job chef that lives here in San Francisco that's got a bike or two that there's some sort of history that's associated with that, that, you know, he was the, he had the fastest time lap going through Golden Gate Park or something. So I'm going to be looking at that. (laughs) Wow. That's a stretch. (laughs) So I do a quick round with everybody. Um, Just kind of going through, um, I do a quick questionnaire. Everybody, it's just like one word answers. But first, if somebody wants to look at, the Horton collection, how can people find it? How can people find you to ask questions or, you know, see, you know, all this amazing articles that you have? Well, certainly month to month, you know, uh, we write an article called seasoned in the back page of Peloton magazine. And, and, and then a lot of our photographs, uh, you know, the, the, they also use uh, particularly the historical black and white photos. Uh, we've had a lot of covers with, with them. That, that's a way that people can get a quick tangible of seeing stuff that's in our collection. Um, our website right now has stuff that are items that we're selling and we've been backfilling and we're still a few months away from having several thousand of items cataloged items in our collection so people can just see it but a lot of it is people will send us email all the time where they're trying to understand something and i I, frankly i find it awesome when somebody has the question about something and it'll it'll oftentimes motivate me to go find the answer if i uh, don't know it or make it up on the spot that's awesome so it's uh hortoncollection.com correct that's it awesome so ready to roll Ready on this? I'm ready. Okay. Red or white? White. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Chocolate fruit? Chocolate. Sea urchin caviar? Definitely not caviar. We can put anything. All right. I'm eating the damn sea urchin. (laughs) (laughs) Hamburger hot dog? Hamburger. Do people still eat hot dogs? Of course they do. No, they're not nasty. Do not. Oh, dude. Are you going back down the... Oh, fall train. No, disgusting. No, they're not. Lung eating whack job. You be quiet. 
You be quiet. Ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. Ooh. One demerit? <laughs> yes, princess who eats lungs. <laughs> there are no real demerits. Uh, so, beer or tequila? Mm, well, well, both. There you go. That's a real answer. There's no, there's no wrong answer. Well, evidently you. that I want ketchup better than mustard because my first thought of mustard is that crappy French stuff came No, Dijon and, and whole grain. I mean, come on. You've traveled the world. It's not like you haven't had good mustard in your life. Yeah, but I'm sitting here with a fellow white trash person. So, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I went to Heinz versus French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You are killing me. Uh, nigiri or uh, sashimi? Neither. Neither? No. Nah. Yeah, I would have never thought. Pasta or ramen? Pasta. A classic or a grand tour? Classic all day long. Single speed? Gears. Are we talking about a track race? <laughs> Doesn't matter. I mean, which? Oh, I'd say a, a road bike. Gravel or road? Road. And by the way, this whole gravel bullshit... Um, let's go back to like the 1920s and you look at, cause we had a, we had a photograph up on our website and it was, let's say it was Leduc climbing one of the mountain passes. Dirt, dirt road. It was a road. So we, we, they we, were dirt back then just to make sure <coughs> that's clear. Absolutely. But then there's this whole series of comments about, Oh, there were gravel racing back then. <laughs> These were roads. That's what they raced Road. on were these roads, just like Pave. I love it. When, when, when I, I had this discussion <laughs> with Sirku about Pave, and Patrick just rolls his eyes and he goes, you guys have a weird fascination. We call those shitty roads that break our cars. <laughs> okay. The other day I put up a photo. I, I And it's it's really funny because you think about how many people were riding skinny tires on dirt because it was what was there. A lot of us used to leave San Francisco, go over the headlands, do, and our loop would be too long on the road. And then we'd jump on the fire roads to get home faster, right? To sneak, absolutely, to cut the course. Not really a course, but just to cut the ride short because we were spent. Now it's like multifaceted. I mean, ultimately gravel bikes are the mountain bikes we used to ride with rigid forks. So I found a picture of Tomac riding with toe clips and AccuTrack yellow fork and drop bars. And I was like, look, gravel racing. Absolutely. And I think it, you know, it plays in now. If you look at the road bikes that were used in the sixties and seventies became the touring bikes of the eighties because of the, the geometry. Same. And you look at a lot of this and go the, 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 and how a lot it's of all about just clearance well and riders will turn their nose up at somebody riding an e-bike and you get a, and for me this has turned into what well, hasn't turned into it's evolved whatever it can has a propensity to be such a fetish sport now that you have to have 35 bikes in your garage yep. to address all these different scenarios that are just you're a legend in your own mind and it really doesn't exist but you know, the manufacturers love it because you have a lot more SKUs to sell uh, sell people that have nothing better to do with the five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars in their pocket. So I'm gonna get myself three different gravel bikes. There you go. Okay, we're here. Aluminum, tie, steel, or carbon. What I want to ride right here, right now, carbon. Just out of curiosity, why? <laughs> <laughs> 
What makes you like carbon? I mean, you, you, and to, to clarify for everybody, Brett raced on the track. You raced velodrome. You were a sprint monster. Why would you prefer carbon over other? I mean, flexibility, stiffness. Well, what is I, I've never liked aluminum. It, in in any form, I just felt like it was this pingy, harsh, nasty ride. Um, I will always have a nostalgic love affair for steel. I like modern steel, but if I go out and I ride a bike from the early 80s, a Columbus SL, I just find them very, they're, they're pretty to look at, but I look at it the same way I'd look at an older car. That car from the 50s is really pretty to look at the lines, but after about 20 minutes, you're going, okay, we're done. Give me, I, I want to go get my, you know, brand new car. They just handle differently. They handle different. They're wildly better. And and then with Ty, I felt Ty was a significant uptick from aluminum. And I felt I liked it better than I liked steel, but I didn't like it wildly more than steel. So it was it was I'd say it's that vague transition. And then the first time I got a carbon bike, and it, it carbon had been around for a while, so it had advanced from what Osso's made one of the earliest uh, carbon bikes to what they are more the modern version you know when people wax nostalgic about these old crappy components uh campy from the 1970s i'm always be able to what have you not actually ridden on index shifting and disc brakes and the the modern composite frames to me the ride is just it's snappy pappy I just have to have, because I'm a middle-aged fat bastard, I have to have something that's more on like a specialized Roubaix platform as opposed to a tarmac. Okay. I, you know, and, and I find, I just, I, I, I like the way they feel. I like the way they respond. And I'm also not parking my butt, never have in my life. I had to go ride a few multi, you know, longer rides that are going to be 100 plus miles. But since I was a track rider, it was all about, you know, two minutes or less. Fast and furious. Yep. Awesome. Brett, thank you so much for taking time. I know you're super busy and I'm really, really looking forward to sharing this with everyone. I mean, there's so much history involved in cycling and it's a passion. It's a love. And you're giving people these puzzle pieces that are connecting the dots for a lot of things that no one really understood. So thank you. Well, and thank you. It's really fun for me. It's uh, awesome to share this stuff. And and I'm the first one to admit I, I view that. Shelly and I are two of the luckiest people on the planet to have got to go on this ride and meet the people we have and to be able to just be, you know, little fanboys in the process. Awesome. Thank you.